So tonight I want to continue uh, talking about the Eightfold Path. If that, if you can recall anything <laughs> of what happened last week, <laughs> seems like a very long time ago, maybe. So many mind moments since. So, a lot of what we're doing here is correcting the view, the understanding that we have about life. So we go from a very distorted view of how things work, or a slightly distorted, distorted view, to a more of a wise view of how things are. And we do this here in the context of this retreat and this tradition a lot by looking at the three characteristics. As you know, some things are green, some are blue, some things are far, others are close, some things are gross, others subtle, some things I like, some things I don't like. Some things are thought, some things are seen, heard. They all have, uh, every phenomena has a specific or specific uh, characteristics to them. But all have in common these three characteristics that we keep naming again and again. And um, so our practice is very much to highlight this, highlight these three characteristics. Somebody came in interview today and said, um, everything is the same. And in my mind, I really went to, oh, they're seeing the three characteristics because they, you know, they're going to tell me, you know, some things are green. Some things are blue, <laughs> some things are far, other near. But all things have this amazing nature to flee, you know. In the end, the conversation went a little bit in another beautiful direction, but that's, that's was what I got, you know, from the first sentence. I was like, oh yeah, everything in the way is the same in the light of these three characteristics. And we want to highlight this here and there and there, over the course of the weeks or months that we're here, we want to have a direct experience of this. One way for me, one, one uh, time that I know something switched in my mind about my understanding of, uh, of this, uh, one of these characteristics of anicca, of the fleeting nature of experience, was um, that I was walking around the loop and it was winter. And, um, and I was uh, coming back towards this building, and I had been very mindful, very much in the body, feeling the, at that point I was feeling the legs, and the movement of the legs and feet. And there was, um, there was not much space in the street because of a lot of snow. And um, 
So I was in the street and suddenly there came this huge yellow bus <laughs> coming down the hill, full speed. And I was walking like this, and like, oh, I'm not sure there's space for me and the bus. <laughs> and, and, but I was feeling my legs. Actually, I was not thinking so much. I was just feeling my leg, hearing the sound and the visual coming bigger and bigger and the sound stronger and stronger. And the fear, suddenly there was, there was fear in the, in the chest area and the, the face. There was a lot of fear. And the bus was coming and the bus went like this. Like really, and you know how we get sensitive on retreat. And, and so the bus went by and just after the, the bus went by and the experience of fear and it was a very upper body experience, you know, a lot of heat and, and um, the bus uh, passed and suddenly I felt my feet again walking and I just realized, wow, in that moment, in that few, these few seconds, there was no bottom part of the body. From the point of view of experience, I don't know, somebody from the outside might have said, yeah, they were still there. <laughs> but the three characteristic, characteristics, we're interested in them from the point of view of experience, not from, uh, were the legs really there or not? <laughs> because the suffering happens from the point of view of experience. It doesn't happen from, oh, you shouldn't be worried about this. It's going to be okay. No, suffering is in here. <laughs> Maybe from another point of view, there's another perspective. But from the point of view of experience, there was the fleeting nature of legs in that case. And just the legs reappeared. And suddenly I understood. Sometimes the insight is inferential. It means we don't have to see it everywhere. We see it well enough, deeply enough, uh, immediately and directly enough in one aspect, clearly enough, that it, um, uh, my word of uh, the use of uh, in, in, uh, inf inferential means, I don't know if it's commonly used in English or if it's even the right word. <laughs> it means that I see how that is true for other experiences that are not the same. And I remember that one being suddenly, I was like, there was a correction of what I was doing here. Oh, I was not, you know, of course, you know, the lectern, lecturer is actually not going anywhere. You know, so it's impermanent because, you know, when there was a tree and somebody made something out of it, this is in a way conceptual. But what we're doing here is we're looking at ex from the point of view exper of experience. I repeat this. So then I was like, oh, Okay, so I don't have to think about the lectern that one day is going to, you know, become something else or be put in the garbage or it's going to break, you know. I can just look at it and maybe become aware that seeing is passing. That when I see it, I have to see it again and see it again that the seeing is not once it's done, you know, it's a, there's a flow in it. And so, if my mind is quiet enough, I can start to see how everything is fleeing, even things that are not moving, you know, that are not going away. Anyway. So this was a place where there was a correction of, uh, of the view for me. Things were impermanent from experience point of view. That... Um,
another way to say it maybe is, um, and I understood something I had read earlier, I think from Lady Sayada somewhere, was saying, when the meditator sees somebody arriving, you know, at the back of the hall, that's not exactly how it's worded in the book, <laughs> but when they see somebody, this is their, an object, and they think that a few seconds later, what sits there is the same object, they're deluded. It's a whole other experience. So is what is experiencing this here, has changed. Can you imagine how much calm it takes to see this, how things are changing? You can say, no, it's the same person that was there and here. But the experience of seeing there and the experience of seeing here is very different. Or the experience of thinking about this person after. If I'm a little deluded, I'll think, well, oh, the person who entered, sat there, and that I'm thinking of right now, it's one permanent thing. Well, it's not. One is an image in the mind, another one is an experience here in time, and another one was an experience there in time. Yeah. So that's how minute we get with uh, uh, the impermanence of things. I'll just name just another one here. For me, a correction that happened was in the woods in the back there. It was also in winter. And uh, I walked in the woods, just behind the, you know, the dining hall on the other side next to the um, annex. I, f I, make, I step a few feet in and the, the forest, the trees are be very beautiful there, the way they are, there's space in between each. And, and there was a, a unique event that happened right there that I recognize as being unique. There was just the right amount of light, snow, sun, wind, that there was this movement of snow going in all directions, like the wind, I don't know what the wind was doing, but it was not going like this, it was kind of going in all kinds of directions, and with the light hitting the trees, and uh, creating shadows and light, and the snow appearing and disappearing in the shade and in the light, there was this amazing thing happening, and th there was kind of, uh, you call it swirls, I think, of snow, a few swirls, and I was like, there was really a connection with this event. This event was an, uh, an experience of, of beauty. For me, from this point of view, of pure beauty. And it lasted for a few seconds. And there was a correction of view for me in the sense that this was about the most beautiful thing I had ever seen in my life. Like that's, it, in terms of visual, that's about as far as it will go in this lifetime. I, I, you know, I'm using thoughts now, but while I was there, I was like, this is absolutely unique nature thing. And, and in the seeing of this, I saw, wow, even this doesn't completely do it. It doesn't completely provide. Like I could not have imagined this much beauty it was there, given completely, and 
it could not swallow me or me swallow it or I couldn't, you know, there was, there was just an event happening and then it passed. It was fleeting and the samsaric nature of it was that, I don't know, it felt like there couldn't be, there was a, there couldn't be a merging, there couldn't be a disappearing in it, there could, there could, not, there could just be seeing amazing beauty and being touched by it. And something in my view of beauty got corrected, that it could provide, that if I could find the one beautiful thing and keep it, then my life problem was, would be solved, <laughs> you know? <laughs> that got corrected. You know, that these are very personal insight, by the way. So, uh, but uh, it says that when the view gets corrected, towards more uh, uh, wise understanding of the nature of things, then naturally um, what will, arrive, uh, what will um, arise in oneself will be renunciation, a letting go of false expectation, as I would word it tonight. A deep letting go that is known as actually very beautiful, and very, uh, it's a, it's a, it is a beautiful mind state. And so it says that for oneself, this is what will arise, renunciation for oneself. And for all beings, self-included, the arising of uh, kindness and compassion will be released. Yeah? What I find extraordinary on this path is that when there is a, the correction of the view, of the understanding of the world, it leads to the heart being freed. It doesn't lead to, okay, so nothing's going to provide, it's all <laughs> fleeting. You know, it doesn't lead to cynicism. It leads to release, to a heart being unhindered, we could say, and being able to meet the world fully with uh, care and, yeah. So in my own words, maybe I was just talking about the two first steps of the Eightfold Path, the right view and right intention. How right view will re lead to wise intentions of renunciation, of uh, caring, of compassion and uh, kindness, yeah. Now I'll open a parenthesis. I don't know how long it's going to be, but it seemed important, so I will. <laughs> I'm not in charge. <laughs> this summer, I, uh, last, this last summer, there was again this amazing theater festival that I think I mentioned to you um, uh, that we have in Montreal, where they bring the best plays that can be moved, I guess, to Montreal for us to see. This summer there was one play called, I'm going to translate the title from French, which was originally in Italian, because it was an Italian play. And the title is, would be something like, On the concept of the face of the sun 
of God. And so, you have to imagine this huge stage, the biggest uh, theater in town, huge like length and height like this. And Romeo uh, Castellucci, the director, was one of the most interesting uh, um, thinker in the theater world globally. Uh, I'd studied at some point in, um, in, uh, at the Beaux-Arts in art school. And going through his stuff many, many years after, he uh, found this uh, painting of the face of uh, Christ that for him represented pure beauty, like he had never seen anything more beautiful than this painting. And he thought, what? could I do with this? I want to do a play with this. I want to do something about this. And so what he came up with is, uh, uh, he, he, um, he said, this is the most beautiful thing. Where could I bring beauty from the most ugly thing and put them together in a way? And he thought, shit is ugly. You know, everything about shit, shitting, is ugly. And so the play that he made, which was one of the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in, in its comment, in its uh, teaching, was that he put this great, made this huge picture of Christ taking all the space. And, okay, we can have all kinds of different relationship with Christ, you know, of course, because of history and what happened in that, but you could just think of a human being that has, clearly, when you look at this human being, the only thing you can see is compassion. There's a, this kind of ease, spaciousness, loving, compassionate look in the eyes of this being. So that takes the whole of the space. And, uh, and the play, you see the inside of an apartment that is white, very designed, you know, white sofa, white table, everything white, very sleek. And there's an old man sitting and trembling a little bit, sitting in the, in the sofa, and his son, probably in his 50s, preparing to go to work. You understand that it's the son just because of the age, and you have a sense that this is what's happening. The old man is sitting in the, in the, uh, in the sofa with... Um, night gone, whatever you call it, uh, PJs or something like this. And just as the sun leaves, you understand it's the morning to go to work, you know, the cell phone, the tie. The father goes, ah, 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 ah. And the son looks, and there's shit everywhere on the sofa. Even in the play, they offer you the smell. It comes with a sulfuric, like a bad smell. And there's nothing happening, it's just the, the son removes his sport jacket and starts cleaning the father and saying, no, it's fine, it's fine, it's okay, and the father is crying, oh my God, oh my God. And he's cleaning the father, and just as he w goes back to work, you know, because he kind of cleaned the mess, ah, ah, and the second time. The whole play is just this, happening over and over again. <laughs> over and over again. 
And what you, you start to understand at some point is the beauty is in the, is the beauty. First, you have always Christ that is looking at you as an audience. You know, you're looking at the scene, but you have this compassionate beings being looking all the time. And this message is so powerful that it's not about the situation. It's about the quality of the mind. You know, and the son goes in and out of loving the father and being compassionate to being exasperated and confused and, and you know, and so and and uh, and the love between two human beings, you know, and uh, anyway, to me, there was an amazing teaching on what beauty truly is, what is what is real aesthetic, and I had heard that before that. Maybe aesthetic is something of the mind, some beauty of the mind that is the deepest kind of uh, beauty. And anyway, in that play from uh, Castellucci, where there was very little words and a lot of shit, <laughs> I couldn't believe how much beauty was brought forth in the smell, in the visual, you know. and. Uh, To me, there's a, a link between this event and this play, the situation in the play, and the way we're invited to live our life, or what we're doing here on retreat. You know, how can we bring forward the most beautiful quality of the mind in the midst of whatever shit everyone finds themselves in the middle of? You know, because I mean, surely. There is some of that happening as you're here, you know. The confusion of the mind, uh, too many people, the, you know, the, whatever it is. Anyway, so that's a free flow uh, parenthesis there offered to you. you. You'll do what you want with it. <laughs> it felt uh, something that I, I don't know why I wanted to bring here. Um, I think because there's something raw about it, and we sit here in the rawness of our nature, you know, and how how we find balance, equilibrium, and beauty in the shadow side of the soul, if I can say so. Yeah. And one thing I want to tie in the talk tonight for me is um, is a teaching about um, is to is I want to say this is a path um, where um, there can be a lot of beauty and joy, and I think I start by putting the shit out there. To say, like, even in that, there can be amazing beauty and joy and connection and, and grace. Yeah? So the first two parts of the path are right understanding and right intentions. And then the three next that we talked about some last week was wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. They're part of the section of the path called sila, 
ethics. Yeah? And this is another place of joy because it says that this practice of right speech, wise action, and wise livelihood can bring this uh, feeling of uh, what we call the bliss of blamelessness, which is, feels good. Feels good, knowing that through my action I'm actually protecting, not hurting, is something that feels good, very important on the path. There's many aspects of the path that are made to feel good so that we can actually walk it. <laughs> yeah? So this is one of them. It's good, uh, the work on ethic is good for this psychology to be sitting with blamelessness. Feels good in this psychology. Uh, it feels good in the community. This work on ethic that we're doing, or this commitment, or this, yeah? It's good for the community, small community, global community. It's also good for the karma, for the good fortune of the future, it says. That being, uh, being harmless now is going to create a lot of joy for the future, not just now, but in the future. So personal, community, or social, uh, future-oriented happiness uh, and also spiritual happiness because this is the ground on which we sit, we could say. If you have been... Um, uh, if the ethics is not clean, we could say, it's very hard to learn meditation because the mind is agitated spending a lot of time justifying itself, explaining, avoiding, you know, so. So maybe that's the, as much as I'll say about that. Um, and of course, you know, there's this beautiful line that I read one time in uh, one book from a Burmese uh, monk, and he was saying, uh, I have hurt other people. How could I not have it? In this life, it's not possible not to. But I practice the Dhamma. And that makes me feel good. I'm reorienting my heart-mind, he says. You know? And that is enough for me, that I know that I'm doing this. So spending the amount of time that we're doing here there's a lot of correction on that level happening. So uh, first I talked a little bit about the panya, the wisdom section of wise understanding and wise intention. Now just a few words on sila, wise speech, action, and uh, livelihood. And now I'm, I'm going to spend the rest of the time maybe talking about uh, right effort, uh, right mindfulness, and right concentration as part of this uh, samadhi section, the development of the mind, if you will. There's one place where the Buddha says, uh, and I think Winnie read that uh, earlier in the retreat, to abstain from all evil, 
to cultivate, cultivate the good and to purify the mind, purify the mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. To abstain from all evil relates to the sila section, the ethical section. To abstain from all evil. To cultivate the good relates to uh, the samadhi section, what I'm going to talk about now. And to purify the mind, uh, it relates to the wisdom aspect, the purifying of the view and intentions. So right effort, or uh, uh, we talked about the whole evening, and she was talking about the four, uh, I think she maybe might have used wise and endeavor, endeavors. Yeah. Um, so the, 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 the effort to abandon uh, the unwholesome, the effort to avoid it from arising, the effort to... Uh, bring, make arise the good, the wholesome, and the, uh, and the effort to uh, cultivate it, maintain it. So I'll say just a few words, little thoughts that I had about this to add some here. There's two qualities that I wanted to mention that are um, very important on the path. You might have heard about them, Hiri and Otapa. Uh, so as I was saying earlier, on the path there's a lot of, um, of the qualities of mind that we will experience that are pleasant, that are beautiful. These two are beautiful, but not pleasant. Uh, they translate as a shame of um, wrongdoing and fear of wrongdoing. And so they're known as to be the two guardians of, uh, of the world. And um, so how it works is at the thought of doing something that might be hurtful, there might be two emotions that I might feel. And it's good to recognize them and value them when they're there. There might be the idea of seeing myself do this and the personal shame of doing this. You know, when I shrink from, like, I could take this, nobody would know, and it's all fine. And there's a kind of a heat that can come with it. If I did that, how I would feel after, yeah? So that's, that's the shame aspect. And the fear is the fear of the, um, either it's, it's more like related to the external, how it would impact others, or how they could judge me if they saw me, or the difficulties that could arise. And I think these two are, uh, are very important in our practice to recognize, because sometimes we'll bypass them, maybe some of us will, you know, say, oh, but that doesn't count because it do- first it doesn't feel good. You know, <laughs> and so when these arise, there might be something to actually value to say, like, oh, look at this. This is an indication from an inner indication that careful here. Let's bring mindfulness to the motivation or intention here. So that can be a good way to actually abandon something that has a some life in. You know how the greed can be driven, and suddenly this emotion comes uh, in and it can help us readjust, you know? So not to, uh, not to fear or despise uh, these emotions, but learn to recognize, oh, this is actually good, you know? Not pleasant, but good. Another thing that 
uh, came to mind for me about abandoning unwholesome states is um, we've talked, I think we've talked here about RAIN, no? the acronym RAIN of recognition, allowing, bringing interest in non-identification. I think we did. I get mixed up with all the different retreats. But um, there's another one that I use sometimes. It's very different. It's ABC. And I, it came to me one day. I was listening to a talk from Ayakema, a wonderful teacher. And uh, she was talking about when there's a, something unwholesome going on in the mind, and we've explored it a lot. <laughs> we pretty much know it. That it's totally okay to actually acknowledge that it's there, be blameless, and then change. So I was like, oh, ABC. Acknowledge that it's there. Blamelessness, no one is guilty of this, but it's not wholesome, and switch. And uh, actually that's something that I use a lot in my practice to actually abandon. I don't need to experience all the states of mind. You know, and some, some I can't abandon. <laughs> they have their own life, of course. But there's a way where I can go in a direction. The mind can pick up something, you know, and it could go in a direction. And there's a point of option there. And say, like, oh, you know what? Sylvia Borstein has another way to put it. She, she has two lines that she'll use. Don't pick this up. Don't pick this up. Put this down. Put this down. So if it's too late for the don't pick it up, then it's put this down. Put this down, honey. Trouble. Yeah. So we can we can do this with ourselves, you know. Uh, say thank you, but no, thank you. You know, there's a rec. I know clearly that this is not helpful. It might be self judgment, judging of others. You know. Uh, going towards fantasy, yeah. And then there's um, avoiding uh, the arising of uh, uh, an awesome, uh, an awesome, and I, I want to name again this self-restraint, this, the sense restraint, sorry, this uh, and to me, it shows in the same way. So I, I, I remember thinking, if I look, I'm going to see. You know, like if I look up, I'm going to see who's walking there, you know, and, and then I'm going to have opinions about, you know. And, and so to, to keep it extremely simple. And, and to me, the most profound expression of uh, sense restraint, I put it in that category is uh, this teaching that the Buddha gave to, uh, to uh, uh, Bahia. I don't know if you know this Bahia Sutta. The most profound uh, teaching, maybe uh, probably make it to the 10 best profound <laughs> teaching. But to me, it talks about uh, sense restraint. That's what I hear in there. And um, the story of Bahia was that he thought he was awake and somebody very generous told him his four noble truths. <laughs> he told him, sorry, I made something French in my mind. Um, somebody uh, told him 
generously that actually was not awake, <laughs> told him the truth. And uh, Bahia really wanted to, uh, to be awake and he was told where he could find a, a great teacher and he went to see the Buddha. And he walked for a great distance to get to the Buddha. Uh, and when he got uh, to where the Buddha was, the Buddha was just about to go on alms round and would never give teaching at that occasion. Uh, and so Bahia said, please give me a teaching. And he said, no, going on alms round, come after, I'll teach you. And, and Bahia said, no, please, please, you have to give. I walked all this length, you know, to see you. I, I want to hear something even very small from you now. And the Buddha said the second time, no, can't uh, give you a teaching now. It's not the appropriate time. And Bahia said, we have no idea what's going to happen. You cannot give me a teaching. Uh, you, you, you know, you cannot not give me a teaching now. Anything can happen in the next few moments, you know, so you have to. And because it was asked the third time, the Buddha said, okay, I'll give you a, a teaching. And I'm going to read you just what he said. And uh, that, that solved the problem for Bahia. He says, then Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In reference to the herd, only the herd. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you there will be only the scene in reference to the scene, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sense, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then Bahia, there is no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of stress. So, should I add something after the Buddha or just... <laughs> Strange situation <laughs> to be in, <laughs> to want to talk after the Buddha. The profoundity lies in the simplicity also of this. In, the, in my wording, in the hearing, just the hearing. This is so simple. In the feeling, just the feeling. Abandoning everything else. And how it becomes extremely simple and natural to be here. So in the effort, abandon the unwholesome, avoid the arising of the unwholesome, cultivate the wholesome and maintain uh, the wholesome. 
maybe I'll switch to another, uh, um, maybe the seventh uh, step on the Eightfold Path of mindfulness. And we've talked a lot about this, but there's a few things I wanted to say. One thing that you might want to do if you have a pen and a paper when you go back to your room tonight or tomorrow morning at some point, you could decide to write a definition of mindfulness for yourself. And maybe later at your next interview, read it to your teacher and just as a base for clarification on that. That's something that I've seen done with students a number of times, and it's been extremely powerful for people to do this, to write their definition of mindfulness. And then in another setting, we could enter into conversation with each other about this. You know. But just to do this and see what is mindfulness for you, with you, and then talk a little bit with your teacher about it. Uh, so that's just a little uh, thing to do. Maybe a little added thing that I'll say is, I'm going to throw this question for you to reflect on for just a few seconds. What is the difference uh, in the mindfulness of uh, these, um, is it four categories, four cases? Mindfulness of a thief uh, rubbing a house. Mindfulness of a surgeon making a surgery. Mindfulness of a climber climbing uh, El Capitan at the Yosemite, if that's the name of it. Climbing a wall. And the mindfulness of a, you know, a practitioner at the three-month retreat at IMS 2012. <laughs> What are the differences in mindfulness in these uh, four? Is it the same thing or different? So let you think about it for a second or two. So, um, although we cannot know exactly what's happening with each one of them, I'm giving very little information. I'm not telling you if the climber is a Dharma practitioner or if the surgeon is, or, <laughs> you know, I'm not saying much. I'm just throwing kind of cliches out there, yeah. Um, but still, um, as part of the Eightfold Path, you know, it's, so it's not just mindfulness, it's wise mindfulness, wise or right understanding, right speech or wise speech. It's uh, this word in Pali is samma, samaditi, wise uh, view, uh, samasati, wise mindfulness. My understanding quickly would be that uh, um, the difference uh, of the practitioner on the retreat and the three others if they're uh, 
you know, climbing for the joy of climbing and uh, uh, doing surgery uh, with the intention of saving a life and improving a life, but with the attention on the technicality of what they're doing, you know, and or the teeth having an, a greed, being led by greed, possibly, we don't know absolutely, but very possible that it would be. Uh, the difference is that in the mindfulness that we're practicing here, there's the samma, the wise in terms of, the way we're applying the mindfulness is in terms of clarifying life, uh, reducing suffering, and liberating the mind. Yeah. So the, uh, the endeavor, maybe is the word, is, uh, is what is called noble, because it can free the mind for oneself. And so the, the mindfulness is in that context, you know. So why do I bring this? Because at this point of the, on the retreat, I would want that we know this while we're being mindful. So when I'm making my bed in the morning, is, it's not so much that I'm mindful making my bed. You know, that's one level of being attentive, but uh, what is the quality of mind, maybe, that is making the bed? Is it a rushing forward quality, or is, it, uh, is there investigation there? What are the qualities? There might be different things there, but in terms of Dhamma, you know, uh, I want to be aware of what is liberating, what is entangling. If I'm uh, in an entangling mind state, I want to be aware of it. As I'm, so it's not so much that I did my bed mindfully, but that there was uh, the dhamma was uh, was there in there. Yeah, I don't know if I'm explaining this uh, right. Or there's a sense that I'm making the bed, or there's a sense that oh no, the hand is moving. You know, like just being aware of this. There's a sense of self for me that would be uh, dhamma happening, mindfulness, wise mindfulness. Oh yeah, there's really a sense that I'm doing this, or not, you know. I mean, there's several ways to talk about making the bed, but um, there's an added value here. There's a, we know why we're doing this, is to free the mind. I'll read you a poem from uh, Paul Reps. I think this talks also some about uh, mindfulness, or why is mindfulness. I'll say a few words after. So it's called Grass Blade Experiencing. This is the law. No sames. No same leaves. Pebbles, person, places, times, faces, grasses. Whoever disobeys the law gets bored. <laughs> so when I started approaching this practice, I had a teacher who was, um, I think I told you, it was disguised as a drama teacher. And the one thing that he repeated the most over the years that had the strongest impact on me was 
when we were in class before doing a scene or after doing a scene or something like this, he would just stop for a second and just say, and I studied with him for many years, so I would see him regularly in class. I was in that room a lot, like us here, you know. And he would say, very often he would just say, hey, we've never been, we've never been here now before. We've never been here now before. It's the first time we're here now. Because there would be a way where the mind would just be habituated, used to being there. I know, I know that class, you know, I know. And he would say, no, we have never been here now before. This is a completely new experience. Don't become general or superficial about this or used to this. This is completely new. And I heard him say that so many times. And that's one of the most valuable thing I've ever heard. And to me, that points to this practice of mindfulness. It's not, yeah, 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 mindful of walking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I've never been here now before in this body. I've never felt fear now before. I've never anything now before. This is completely new. Assuming that I know this is complete delusion from my point of view. It's how we live our life. Yeah. I've never been here now before. To me that highlights also impermanence, how things are gone and how the look needs to be fresh all the time to be real, to be in sync with reality. Christopher Titmus, another teacher here, would say, uh, he would call about re-establishing memory. He would say, you know, when you look in an ordinary way, you see a plant, plant. Oh yeah, I know that kind of plant. Well, re-establish memory. Have a new version, a recent version of that kind of plant. (laughs) See it anew. And I'm mixing things here. For me, there's a link, but... Eugene Cash, a teacher that I really loved, used to sit, I heard, every year with his daughter, let's say she's in her 20s, they would sit on the sofa next to each other, and he would say to her, I am not your father. Not in a soap opera kind of way. Like. <laughs> and she would say to him, I am not your daughter just to cut through the habituated way of seeing the other. And so then when you hear that, you, I am not your daughter, then you have to look again. So who's there then? You know? To me, this is the mindfulness we're practicing. Is like, I've never been in this body now before. I cannot say, oh yeah, this body, I know this body. I know how it feels. This is how it feels. No, this is a completely new experience. To me, this is very central in this practice. That's the only way into insight. We're not going to get insight by being superficially there. Yeah, 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 I'm, I'm kind of there, you know?
in the mindfulness, uh, as you know, there's a f often the sama, sama, sama sati, the wise mindfulness, is equated or equals the four foundations of body, you know, body being the posture, the breath, the activities of the body, uh, you know, and there's other, the elements being some of them. There's other ways to look at the body, but these are the main that we use here, you know. So, taking on the body as a field of awareness, taking on the four foundation, one being the body in its different ways, the second one being Vedana, the feeling tone. We've talked about this a lot, and I want to add something tonight about this. You know about the threefold division of the feeling tone, pleasant, neutral, unpleasant. There's also extremely important, a six-fold division. So you take the same pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant, but you divide this in two. That is called uh, classically, I think, uh, I'm not going to remember the classic, so I'm going to go for my version of it. It's um, liberating or entangling, let's call it like this. Worldly or spiritual are two other ways to talk about this. So it's important to start to make the difference between the two. So there are pleasant feelings that are unworld leading, unworld leading, liberating on the path. And there's some that are entangling. Those that are entangling, we name them before it's when there's the, the pleasantness and there's a clinging that comes with it, without mindfulness. And the liberating ones, there's a whole category of the spiritual pleasant, and these are qualities of the mind that the Buddha said, oh, I don't need to fear this. I don't need to avoid this. This is onward leading. Renunciation. The joy of insight. The, the vipassana joy of when I say, oh my God, anicca. I just, I just felt it. You know when our experience match what we keep hearing again and again? You know, suddenly you, you experience it for yourself, yeah? This, the 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 pleasant and spiritual is the bliss of blamelessness that I named earlier. Yeah? Uh, there's so many, mostly the path is made, made of pleasant uh, uh, feeling tones, uh, when the qualities are there, contentment, seclusion, when the, the hindrances abide, when there's not the desire, aversion, agitation, sloth and torpor, doubt is gone. That experience of being secluded from these, uh, uh, apart from these mind states, is extremely pleasant. Yeah, pity, the ecstasy or joy or enthusiasm, some kind of energy, curious energy for practice, involvement, engagement in the practice. These are good to recognize on the path when they're there. Yeah. And the highest one being the release, the, the understand, the great understanding. Yeah? There's some in this division of pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant. A neutral one that we could um, uh, put in the spiritual, for sure, is upekka, equanimity that we talked about. This evenness of mind. The mind is so balanced that it, it has a quality of neutrality to it. Yeah. And so that is a neutrality that is onward leading. And maybe to name uh, also an example of the unpleasant, 
that is unworld, unworld leading would be hiri and atapa, these two qualities of shame and dread, not pleasant, but unworld leading. Or sometimes when there's a, a discovery, like I, I have a, some kind of insight about the pattern, an un, unhelpful pattern, it's not a good news. You know, I sit there and like, oh my God, again, this thing is so active, you know. And it's not pleasant, but it, it's honest, it's, it sees clearly. And so it may be unpleasant, but one can recognize, okay, it's unpleasant, but onward leading, because it can be seen clearly. You know, it's better that it's seen than hidden and doing its thing, you know. So in this way, we can start to recognize this. Um, what I would put in there also is if there is something that is pleasant at the sense door and could lead to the tendency of clinging, want more, want to keep, but it's met with samma sati, with great mindfulness, and it leads to a, a beautiful release or allowing pleasant to be there without the clinging, then we can put it in the category of liberating. Yeah? So when we meet the unpleasant, the neutral, and the pleasant with mindfulness, and it doesn't lead to the, the usual uh, tendency, then this is onward going. So one can, can uh, uh, recognize this and appreciate that, if that speaks to you. Maybe just to finish, I'll tell you a little story just because it happened in this hall. And so one time I was sitting, it would be like kind of this seat there during a retreat. It was actually I wanted to do the three month and um, they told me you have to have sat a retreat here before. And so I said, oh, what's the next one? I'll come. You know? <laughs> and I found myself on that retreat and it was, uh, I was sitting there and uh, the samasati was not uh, st strong, <laughs> to say the least. Actually, some of you might remember, if you have came here a, a long time ago, there used to be a red stage, carpeted stage, with a, it, it would go a little bit in front like this. So I was the first uh, there. And I was sitting, and uh, the teacher was giving a talk, uh, not unlike this one, and it was going on and on and on, and we were way past the one hour. And I was sitting there, and the sound started to sound like really, really, uh, the volume seemed really high. And I was sitting there, I was like, this is, this is way too loud, you know, it's actually going to pierce my ear. <laughs> and I, I have to do something about this. Will they stop? They're not stopping. I can't believe this. This has been going way too long. This is dangerous for my health. I have to... <laughs> remove myself from this room now. I have to do something now, but I'm in the front row, you know, in the middle. And, and I keep thinking, and the person, the teacher keeps offering their dharma, you know, and, and I'm like thinking and thinking. And at some point I thought, I have to save my life, you know. <laughs> and so I stood up, and I had no, uh, I was not in the first foundation of mindfulness. I was not in the body awareness so much, nor in the hindrance awareness. The, there was not, not so much going on at any level. 
And I, so I just stood up to leave, but I had not noticed that my legs had, <laughs> had become numb. <laughs> I just had enough energy to raise my body. And so the next thing that happened is I felt flat <laughs> on the floor with my chin, my chin on, the, on the first red step. And it made a big bang. And the, the teacher very generously, you know, said, oh, what's going on, you know? And to add the insult to injury, I said, I said, it's too loud! It's too loud! Really, really, you know, to cover the noise in the room, which there was none. And I was laying there. Actually, at that point, I think I was crawling out <laughs> in this direction. And uh, the, teachers, the teacher said, is it too loud? Uh, very, very much concerns, concerned for the yogis. And uh, all the yogis went like this. <laughs> and by that time, I was on my fours and uh, left the room. <laughs> so I was not, as I was crawling there, I was not on the Eightfold Path. <laughs> I was uh, on the deluded path. And so it is said that to um, meet life, the best strategy to meet life is through uh, samasati. Right attention is the best way to avoid uh, the unwholesome and the maturation of the unwholesome. And um, yeah. And you know, we fall and we stand up again and we start from fresh. That's the beauty of it, is that we can always start from fresh. And find wisdom in any of the phenomena of life at some point down the road. So maybe we'll just finish with a little moment of um, <laughs> silence. <laughs> So may we all find great ease of mind and spaciousness of mind. And uh, may we be able also to offer this to others.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.